I mean, if they're meant to be like reductive and, and exhaustive like that, then obviously we did evolve to look at screens because we have them, <laughs> right? Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast for a week of bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week, we're going to be talking about an interview with philosopher David Chalmers, who is an expert on the philosophy of mind and consciousness, and he's a big proponent of the idea that we just don't quite know what consciousness is yet, against the likes of some sort of scientific thinkers uh, like Dan Dennett, who are like, actually, we do know what consciousness is, and it's just like chemicals in the brain and shit like that. Chalmers was like, no, we don't really know. And he did an interview talking about virtual worlds and what it might mean to live meaningfully in a virtual world. It's in the New York Times. We'll post the link down below to the article. But basically, the title of the interview is, um, what is it? What's the title again, Troy? It's Can uh, We Have Meaningful Life in a Virtual World? Yeah, can we have a meaningful life in a virtual world? Which again, I don't and know so, if that's his choice, that title. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm always, it's always an editorial decision, right? It's some sort yeah. of uh, snazzy editor that's like, ooh, how can we kind of get some clicks? So it's a little bit clickbaity. And I do actually want to parse the title because um, I think there's some interesting phrasings in there that um, indicate some uh, biases or indicate some some hidden unconscious ways of thinking that I think might be interesting to unpack. But then, of course, you get into the meat of the discussion and there's some interesting things that, to, that we can talk about. So, yeah, can we have a meaningful life in a digital? or in a virtual world. So um, let's chat a little bit about that. Um, do we have any housekeeping that we got to get into before we get into the meat of this stuff? I don't think so. I think we can just jump into the shitty minute, yeah? All right, cool. Yeah, um, Just I, I do want to just say one thing. If you uh, find value in what we're doing and you want to support us, oh. please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Um, as I said on the last episode, we got a new producer. So if you can throw some pennies our way, that'll help us to pay for her. Um, and we can be a little bit more consistent with episodes and getting new equipment and getting up our merch page back and fucking getting things going so that we can actually be like a real operation rather than just two dudes in their bedrooms in two different parts. Parts of the world talking into microphones and yelling about philosophy and how the sky is falling or not falling or whatever. So yeah, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. I take offense to that, dude. I'm in my office, not a bedroom. <laughs> Ooh, you're so <laughs> official. Okay. Well, get me out of get me out of it. You know, yeah, help me get out and into a real official space. Um, so awesome. Cool. Well, let's get into this goodness. All right, so the first thing we're going to do is the shitty minute, and that's the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? So we try not to do too much um, uh, superficial culture war stuff. You know, we don't really jump into the culture war debates and things like that. Or if we do, we try to handle them with a little bit of reason and rationality and maybe from a different perspective and try to kind of um, go a little bit deeper than the typical public discourse is. But this shitty minute might be exempt from that typical rule because I'm just going <laughs> to very much so. I'm just, yeah. Um, 
I'm just going to talk a little bit about the whole uh, calls to, I don't know, is it canceling? Is it censoring? Is it just allowing the whims of the market, whatever you call it, to remove Joe Rogan from Spotify um, because of misinformation that he is spreading on his podcast? And so you get guys like Neil Young and Dave Grohl who come out and say they're going to remove their music. And then Crosby, Stills, and Nash are following. And then Joni Mitchell is as well, as well as like Brene Brown not producing podcasts and various others who are removing their content from the platform of Spotify. And now here's the deal. I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of Joe Rogan. Is he like a harm on society and um, anything like that? You want you want some more nuanced takes on that? Go listen to some nuanced takes on that. I'm just <laughs> going to say this. I just want to say this. So Neil Young removes his music from Spotify. And then two days later, he sends out a tweet that is like, hey, everybody, if you want to check out my music, go to Amazon Music and check out my music. Now, bro. <laughs> Bro, if you are leaving Spotify because of uh, an ethical reason and then you go to fucking Amazon as your new platform of choice, I'm sorry, but fuck you, man. Like, seriously, that is there is no consistency there. If it's all about some sort of moral, ethical, high position, then you got to be consistent. You can't then go to basically some supervillains platform because you're leaving one. Like, what's worse? Is Spotify worse than Amazon? And like, is it just because you and then you had all these people on Twitter that were like, Oh, the reason that Neil Young and Joni Mitchell are so opposed to the misinformation of vaccines is because they like lived through polio and they, the polio vaccine saved their lives. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, that just seems like such a silly, like, that's, that's why. The, that, that's the classic, that's like, the, as, as a father of daughters, I am against <laughs> rape. <laughs> Like, is that the reason? Yeah, yeah. like that's the reason. So anyway, there's just a lot of fucking silliness, inconsistency. And then it comes out like it's not a conspiracy. Like I love when Noam Chomsky says he's like, it's not a conspiracy theory to say that there are two men uh, in suits in a back room shaking hands and making a deal. Right. Which is essentially like corporate power. When you recognize the corporate power and how money moves things, that's not a conspiracy. So what I'm going to say is kind of fitting with that. Neil Young doesn't own the rights to his music. It's this. This other company, it's this billion dollar company called Hypnosis, who's actually owned by Blackstone, not BlackRock, but Blackstone, um, another sort of like gnarly investment firm. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, they have like um, uh, heavy investments in um, Pfizer. And so there's all these kind of like corporate money interests that may also be playing into this decision. That's not to say that Neil Young isn't annoyed at Joe Rogan. And that's not to say that Neil Young isn't like, hey, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We should have some sort of higher ethical responsibility about the information that we produce en masse. That's not saying that he doesn't actually feel that way. He may actually feel that way. And that's fantastic. But this is also to recognize that there are many other causal factors that go into decision making, pulling money from things. And, and then this kind of like moral purity in a world where there's so many grays to me is it turns into just this fucking clusterfuck sensationalist outrage that um I, I think it's driving us crazy you know like i think i think people are literally being driven crazy because uh we just don't have the tools and resources to actually deal with the amount of information and then the sort of like amount of conflicting flows of information like like these really like really difficult contradictions of society and and um, of economic factors and I just I 
I don't know. I just think it's an it, it's like a symptom of this larger, deeper thing. But of course, like the popular media and blue checks on Twitter or Insta, they're not going to wade into this. So they just sort of feed into this outrage machine and it just makes people more and more crazy. And, um, I just feel like we're going crazy into the twilight, uh, of, uh, of whatever our years are at the moment. So that's, that's, that's my shitty minute. That's, that's, what's been driving me crazy lately. Yeah, dude. I mean, I, I love Neil Young, so it's it's tough for me to speak out against him anyway. But it does seem like it was it was kind of a cynically timed ploy um, to just move into a different service and get some, you know, get some headlines for it. At the same time, like I actually I can't believe I'm saying this in the year of our Lord 2022, but I respect <laughs> the guy from Eve Six, who's apparently like a huge Twitter guy, dude. Yeah, dude. He's he came actually, out and was like, yeah, fuck all the Joe he, Rogan shit. Like, I'm not going to talk about that because it's because who cares? But like Spotify is just fucking exploitative. So just fuck them for that. Right. Like that's yeah, the real I reason. Think, <laughs> yeah. Like they get 0.03 cents per stream and they get like a million streams a month, you know? Um, yeah. And he was kind of like talking about the math of it. And he's like, wait, we're getting we're getting fucked over. And so are all of these other musicians who Spotify are exploiting, but yet they pay, you know, um, uh, uh, a nine, a nine figure contract to this podcast guy. So they got the money, right? They've got the money to pay. Um, but they just exploit artists so that they can have this massive platform. And yeah, that was, I saw that too. I was like, Eve six. I only remember that one song from fucking like the nineties. <laughs> yeah, I, I would swallow my pride. I would choke on the rhymes <laughs> that the lack thereof will make me empty inside. Swallow my doubt. Turn me inside out. Remember that one? Something about a ble- beautiful oblivion. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Find nothing but faith in nothing. Want to turn my tender heart in a blender. Watch it turn round to a beautiful oblivion. Rendezvous when I'm <laughs> through with you. Damn. That's memories. <laughs> At what point do we get a copyright mark on this episode? Oh, um, uh, yeah, I know. Well, hey, this is shout. Maybe this will boost their numbers a little bit. Go listen to that Eve Six song, Inside I, Out. I, if I, I remember what he I looks love that like, song you could actually a teenager. cosplay as him, I think. Yeah, he's got like the, yeah, he's got like tattoos and like, yeah, like yeah, white guy with tats and, and you know, <laughs> yeah, short yeah. hair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, oh shit. Yeah, so like what what I want to know is, and I'm sure there's there's obvious answers to this, but like the obvious answer in my mind to the to this clear problem of like streaming music is clearly going to be the dominant way that people listen to music from here on out, right? So yeah. why can't there just be like okay, Spotify doesn't have anything unique to it. Like Deezer is the same thing, right? Titles, the same thing. Bandcamp's kind of the same thing. All this physical media on Bandcamp too, right? Why can't there just be a co-op that all the artists who are on Spotify own Mm. or on Mm. whatever the new music service is? And then there's just no one who's skimming off the top. Like, and then it's just based on the, the money split based on streams or whatever. Like, why can't that's so obvious and it wouldn't be hard. There's no unique technology there from what I can gather. Right. Certainly no one has like, I'm guessing has a, um, a patent on like streaming music since there are so many of them. Right. So why can't we just have yeah. a co-op? Why, why is that so hard? Like yeah, would, the, would um, the Jay-Z's of the world just end up owning it because they have so much power given the, the amount of streams or whatever that they would get. I mean, I don't know. What's the reason? Yeah, and please, and, please and don't, it, don't at me and say neoliberalism because I know that's the answer. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I do wonder, would, um, I mean, if it were like a, a more equitable profit share, though, would people like the Taylor Swifts and the Ed Sheerans who dominate the streams right now, would they be against it? Because they probably already do all right. It's probably like the middle tier and lower acts that don't make any money, right? Like, like Taylor Swift probably has like some sort of contract with Spotify, like worth millions of dollars. Like, I don't know. I'm, I haven't Googled this, but there's something like that. Like if Joe Rogan has a contract, it's like an exclusive contract. Wouldn't other artists maybe get like a little bit either exclusive contracts, although I mean, obviously you can get Taylor Swift's music elsewhere, but like maybe it's either either exclusive contracts or just kind of like, hey, if you promote our stuff, you know, because so many people look at your streams, if you keep like flooding our platform, then we'll give you a little extra off the top. Like, so would maybe, would they maybe have a problem with that because uh, they're just not getting as big of a profit share in a co-op situation? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a typical labor issue problem. Like you need a mass, you need a labor movement. You need a mass exodus of all the middle and low tier artists in terms of streams. And that would be the only way to pressure um, the more powerful ones uh, to to move as well. But that requires a level of, of social engagement and solidarity that just does not exist in America in any sphere. Yeah, how come there's no, like, DIY... You remember how there were, like, all these cool fucking DIY, like, punk labels, like the fucking... The, the, the dude from Bad Religion, didn't he have... What, what, Epi- what record label did... Epitaph, yeah, like, but before Epitaph became Epitaph, it was just like, hey, there's just these fucking punk bands from California that we're gonna sign, you know? Um, and I think that's how Offspring got their start, right? Like, before they were the Offspring, Um uh, like actually literally, I think when they had a different name too, but then even before they became like offspring with the, the album smash, was that the big one for them? Yeah, um, that was a big one. But like, yeah, yeah. So, but so like stuff like that, like, um, where there were all these cool labels, like what if they did something like that, but in, in the digital space, right? Like exactly what you're talking about. Like instead of a record label, cause that's like old school modeling. It's now about a platform service, like a streaming service. Yeah, I mean, Bandcamp is kind of like that. I, I use Bandcamp whenever I, okay. I buy music because they have the most generous like artist policy. And I think any artist on Bandcamp will tell you that. Um, but they, I don't think that they have the, they certainly don't have the the breadth that, you know, the major streaming services have. So mm. yeah, it's tough. I mean, the obvious, the answer is obvious, but that requires certain conditions to apply that just don't apply and don't seem to work. Um in the States right now. Yeah. You need that shit like Norway has where like if nine guys get laid off from, uh, from some like industry, the whole country shuts down until it gets fixed. <laughs> that's, that's the fucking level of solidarity needs to happen. You heard the story about when McDonald's came to, I can't remember if it was Norway or Sweden. And I think the same thing happened with Burger King. Like they come right. And they're like, fuck it. We're the biggest corporation in the world. Like we're not going to abide by, um, your sectoral bargaining <laughs> rules or whatever. It's technically not law, right? It's just sectoral bargaining like contracts or agreements. So we'll just, you know, we'll not do it. And like McDonald's shows up and then like the paper industry shuts down. So they have no menus and like they can't get the chairs and the tables delivered to the restaurant because whatever dudes who like move the chairs off the trucks don't show up to work. And then the trucks don't show up either. So just nothing <laughs> happens. And they're like, okay, fine. We'll, we'll abide by the rules. Fucking everything <laughs> shuts down. That's what we need, right? That's solidarity, man. Yeah, but you know, if uh, America and the American ethos is becoming more and more entrenched around the world, solidarity just isn't cool, man. You know what's cool? Doing you. You you do you, bro. <laughs> you just 
what do you want to do and who are you and what's your individual identity? Yeah, that's that's what matters in in America and in the American cultural empire. So I know I was just talking about Norway this week, actually, with my girl. We were just chatting about it and we're like, oh, shit, Norway has some cool shit. I've never been. Yeah. I want to go. It's it's like it's like in my top of places to visit. It, when I was living in Europe, I never went to like Scandinavia or even northern Europe. Well, no, I guess I, I did a little bit, but I never went to Scandinavia. And I really wish I would have. Sweden, Denmark, Norway. I've got a buddy who lives in Copenhagen. I'd love to go. And oh, yeah. Her Copenhagen like, is beautiful. Amazing. Yeah, that's what he said. He's like, it's just fucking beautiful city. He's like, everything is there for you. You know, and he's from like York in uh, in England and he's like, shit. So you go to Copenhagen and he's like, compared to York, he's like, it's still, it's colder. He's like, so you think it'd be like miserable. He's like, it's not, but everyone's like fucking jolly. And it's just like a baseline of happiness that is different than like the kind of like um, false happiness that you get, like the, the false pursuit, like, you know, desire seeking desire that is like chasing an endlessly receding goalpost. It's that, that it's a, it's contrary to that kind of happiness, you know, like, like a contentment. Um, yeah, it's like a contentment. Yeah, and he's like, it's fucking crazy. And he's lived there for a handful of years now, and uh, it took him a while to get it, you know, because at first it was kind of, you know, a big culture change. But now he's like, dude, it's, it's like qualitatively different. And I'm like, God, that sounds so interesting, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the closest I've been is um, the Netherlands and Iceland. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to judge places by being there for a week or whatever, but you can, it's pretty stark. <laughs> The contrast, um, just in terms yeah. of like just seeing the level of so- social infrastructure that exists, like you see it the second you get there, right? Mm. Like you walk around Amsterdam or Rotterdam, and there's like, oh my god, there's seven thousand bikes right there. Like I can in, yeah, in yeah, my yeah. periphery, I can see seven thousand bicycles. <laughs> like that's just not yeah. a thing you would ever witness in the states. <laughs> no, 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 no. So. All right, let's wrap up this shitty minute. We've done enough ranting. Let's get into some happy, um, deep discussions about meaning in a virtual world. Will you? Yeah, um, yeah. Will you set us up? Tell us a little bit about maybe Chalmers and the the essay or the um, the interview. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that Chalmers is a um, philosopher of mine. I believe he's Australian. Is he not? Um, he is. He is Aussie. 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 Oi. 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 Yeah, so Australian, but he's he's done a lot of work in the states too at uh, NYU, I believe, and in California at one of the UCs. I forget which one. Um, he's you know he travels around. He's he's probably one of the foremost public philosophers, um, at least in like analytic philosophy in the world. I would guess, along with like Noam yeah. Chomsky. Um, yeah, he's under- I, I think so. I think I think people. He does a lot of like discussions like these types of interviews and discussions in like the New York times or like they have that, the stone, that series thing. Um, and then like little YouTube clips on like, you know, talking with like cognitive scientists about the brain and stuff like that. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, I personally think, I mean, he, he's certainly of the, I mean, I don't know if I want to say more milquetoast analytic philosophers, but he's, he's certainly like, he's part of the analytic philosophy school, right? He's not one to, to branch out outside the, the boundaries of the discipline too much. Right. At the same time, I think he's probably the best of that um, ilk within the sort of analytic philosophy of mind. Certainly, if you're mm. thinking about his compatriots as being like, you know, Dan Dennett and others. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think he's he kind of popularized the idea of the hard problem of consciousness, um, which he he named it that and has become kind of a, a technical term in the literature, referring specifically to uh, explaining exactly how how consciousness can be explained um, reductively based upon, uh, sort of causal mechanisms of 
like brain chemistry, right? And the hard problem being that there's just no obvious way, not even an obvious way how you even start to answer the question of explaining mm. in a reductive fashion um, the nature of consciousness via uh, brain chemistry. Um, so interesting stuff. I mean, I, I think I've told the story in the podcast before, but if you want to get an idea for for Chalmers like personality and why he's kind of quirky and unique and um, people like him a lot. And I, and I, I know some people that um, when I was at Cal State LA who who knew him personally and universally he's vouched for as being one of the kindest um, individuals mm. who was a major public figure in analytic philosophy and also extremely supportive of people who are left of field thinkers. I had a, I had a professor at, at a, um, in grad school in my master's degree who knew him personally and had a really hard time in the job market because he had some left to cent- left to center views and philosophy of mind that were anti-scientific. And hmm. Chalmers hmm. personally helped him find a job because he believed his work was good. And oh, so no he, shit. yeah, he was kind of eternally grateful to Chalmers for that. So yeah, he's he's supposed he's apparently a really, really great guy. He comes across as a really jovial, gregarious kind of Yeah, he just kind of seems like guy. a bloke. Yeah, he just he's uh, he has like this long hair. He kind of seems like he'd be like a former metal dude that got into philosophy and now he's just really interested in like brains. Like an <laughs> you know? 80s metal dude, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, an 80s man. That's exactly how he comes across. Like no, yeah, like never seen a comb, wears a leather jacket <laughs> over like a white t-shirt. Yeah, yeah that yeah, kind yeah. of guy. Exactly. Yeah, so he's writing this book apparently <laughs> that's called or has written this book called Reality Plus where he's Yeah, just came out last into, month. Yeah, it's delving into, I guess the subtitle is Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. So it sounds like kind of a popular philosophical book where he's going to just sort of write some essays, it sounds like, that uses um, virtual reality uh, as ways to elucidate common philosophical problems. Pretty typical kind of thing for a public philosopher to do when they get some sales, right? Yeah. Um, Oh, I didn't tell you the story. So the story about Chalmers that I love is he was at a conference, uh, I don't remember where, and it's sort of, you know, um, and he's staying in a hotel. And so he wants to have some illustration in his in this lecture he's going to give at this conference. So he takes the blow dryer from his hotel room, and he gets a piece of tape, and he writes consciousness detector on it. And he tapes the the blow dryer with this piece of tape, <laughs> consciousness detector. And he, he, during his lecture, he walks around the room and points the blow dryer at people, and then makes a beeping sound when he points it at their head because they have consciousness and then he and then he goes to dan dennett and it doesn't do anything so he like shakes it and like hits it and then points it at dan dennett's face again like nope nothing goes oh well sometimes it doesn't work (laughs) Uh, that's so funny Uh, i wonder if dan dennett had i wonder if dennett had a a sense of humor about it i I think i remember the story being that he did but dan dennett's a pretty cool guy so i think it was more like a smirk than anything else that's good yeah it's so funny because he's oftentimes lumped with guys like Hitchens and Dawkins. But in terms of disposition, Dennett has never been like the grumpy atheist to me. You know, like oh, yeah, Dawkins he's not is that, just yeah. no, Dawkins just seems like an insufferable person. But uh, Dennett, he does, even though I would disagree with him fundamentally, I think he just kind of seems he he got like, you know, who he reminds me of. He reminds me of my fucking grandpa. And I, I, I know that that's. <laughs> Easy to say, but he's got that big beard and he's got like those rosy cheeks. He he's Santa Claus essentially. He's the Santa Claus. He of does look like Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, and 
The, re- yeah. Yeah, the reductive Santa Claus, for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Reductive materials. Yeah, so like he, he's a serious philosopher, right? Dawkins is not a philosopher. Yeah. He just cosplays yeah, exactly. as one poorly. Um, and even Hitchens was, you know, more of like a like a literary... Polemicist? A yeah, polemicist, like a polemicist more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. Then it's a serious philosopher. And definitely one I would consider in fundamental disagreement, myself in fundamental disagreement with. But he's a serious philosopher whose arguments need to be like taken seriously. Hmm. Okay, so yeah. that said, as introduction, um, we're reading this interview. Can we have a meaningful life in a virtual world where Chalmers is sort of trying to, I think, provide a somewhat nuanced take on um, some maybe more extreme responses to this question that comes up a lot regarding the fir- the future of um, digital worlds and the metaverse and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm thinking of like the extreme views as being, one being Absolutely not, right? There's something yeah. uh, inherently fake about virtual worlds that will that there's no possibility for anything meaningful or inherently valuable to occur in them, uh, and so they're to be rejected ultimately. And then the other one being something like it's the exact same thing as the as the quote unquote non-virtual or real world, right? Uh, so there's no problems. Like it's just it's not it doesn't play any role whatsoever. The it, being a virtual world plays no role whatsoever in its meaning constitution. It's the same thing as the real world, right? Um, so obviously those are two extreme answers, and so we want something that's more nuanced between those two, right? Um, uh, yeah, that sounds like the kind of thing I think he's he's trying to do here. Maybe moving a little more on the side of like some slight optimism about virtual worlds, at least eventually in the longer term, providing loci for meaning-making or significance-making or whatever, while acknowledging that there's certainly going to be special problems with virtual worlds. Um, Right. Yeah, so, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you wanted to maybe do a little little Kantian transcendental questioning um, of the Uh, actual title. I do. I, I do. And I'm glad you said that. I, I, I really do want to do that, like literally word for word. But I also I just um, I just wanted to say, too, it's 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 perfect. So when you sent me like a list of things that we could potentially talk about, this one really jumped out at me because, first of all, I'm just really interested in the future of digital technology. I'm interested in what it means to live a, a meaningful life, especially with these new forms of um landscapes, we might call them, or scapes, because if, if they're not landscapes, they're digiscapes, um, that are kind of confronting us as, as possible places where we might live and breathe and think and and buy and, and, and engage in social activities, right? I mean, we're already doing it quite heavily anyway. So um, it just seems to me that it's more like, is, is switching from like um, an, uh, uh, an interface going to be qualitatively different when it's virtual, right? I think for me, that's something that's interesting. There's been a lot, obviously, in like the anthropology and sociology of digital technology that has examined how social forms change, economic forms change through an interface like a digital screen. Um, and I think there's a lot of fear and concern about what it might mean with the virtual world, especially with the popular popularity of like the metaverse coming. Right. And so I I think the typical kind of response from lefties in particular, people who really care about equality, who care about justice, whether that be economic, social um, or otherwise, um, they, 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 I would say that the kind of like orthodox line is virtual world equals bad because of exploitation and probably oppression, right? Because it will just centralize power more, right? And there was this interview done on Breaking Points with Crystal and Sager with Johan Hari, 
who's like a, do you know Johan Hari? He's like a I know, British. I know that name, yeah. Yeah, he's like a British journalisty kind of dude. But anyway, like it was very much like a love fest between the three of them talking about like just how bad virtual spaces are, right? How bad the metaverse is going to be. And it was all rooted in this idea that it was like an escape. Like like things are so bad that young boys in particular escape to these like live action role play, role playing games, right? Or things are so bad in the real world that they have to escape to these um, screen-based uh, platforms. And I even tweeted out because he actually tweeted, he, he said something. He was like, we didn't evolve to interact with screens. And I just think that there is this real fundamental <laughs> fetishization of like the evolved being and this sense of like a fetish of the, the, the natural over and against the cultural that one is really lazy thinking. Because if you think about it, it's like, okay, so then at what point did this evolution stop? It's like almost like there's this line, right? And it's like, I think people think it's like this. This is what I think these types of people think like, oh, okay. So there's like, there's like water and then there's like chemicals in the water and they turn into like amoebas. And then those amoebas get like, like they turn into fish and then those fish get legs and they turn into like lizards and then lizards turn into these other forms. And eventually you get like these chimps and they have like higher uh, developed forms of, of rational faculty. And then chimps turn into like these, um, uh, pre-human type of hominids and then you get like humans and then at that point 200,000 years ago the human was formed and we are now just living in the wake of that process that point like like that moment of evolutionary development and everything that we have done since then has been like a bastardization of the true functionalities of what it means to be a human, a homo sapien. Right. Um, and, uh, and screens, uh, are like the kind of new enemy. And of course a virtual world is going to be like the intensified enemy of what it means to be, um, kind of like uh, human because they totally go against our biology and stuff like that. And they use this type of language. And I think it sounds nice and neat. It, it, there's, there's, there's a sense in which that narrative like has a logical thrust to it, but I don't think it works at all. Like philosophically, I think it's co uh, incoherent. And then also it just doesn't seem to make much sense in terms of how we understand humans development with technology, right? Like essentially with technology, Right. Um, even language is a technology. Right. Um, you know, sitting on a on a rock uh, rather than just standing and walking could be viewed as a technology. Uh, using a stick to kind of knock a fruit down is is a, a, a rudimentary form of technology. But then it's like, oh, but no, because humans evolved with an opposable thumb and we have problem solving skills. So that's that's natural. Right. But a screen which also creates some sort of interface where you can communicate with somebody and you can touch it and you can look at it. That somehow isn't uh, a part of it because of reasons. And they don't really supply those reasons except for usually it's too fast. That's what they usually say, right? Like it's too fast. It's just too much coming well, at us. And I'm like, well, that, that, that's not a fucking answer. You know, that's, that, that's the thing, dude, is these evolutionary psychology arguments, they're, they're meant to be exhaustive, right? Like they, they're never like playing a minor role in an argument. It's always fully explaining why something is bad. It's always because something is right. bad, right? And it's so funny because it's like, I mean, if they're meant to be like reductive and, and exhaustive like that, then obviously we did evolve to look at screens because we have them, <laughs> right? If you're going to explain everything by evolutionary biology, then evolutionary right. biology led to the production of screens that we look at. So clearly we did evolve <laughs> to look at them, right? In that sense. 
And so and that's, I mean, that's, that's such a simple argument, but literally that was the first thought that came out of my mind. I was like, but wait a second, everything that we do is a part, is an expression of our being as humans, and therefore we did evolve for it, unless somehow, like, an alien consciousness has taken over our capacities to create technology, or, or, or like, uh, we're going to do, like, the, it's, but wait, it's corporations that somehow have this autonomy, and they're, like, an alien non-human force? No, like, they might, they might be exacerbating certain tendencies of, of social asymmetry that we don't like, but that's different. That's, that's an ethical question. That's a societal question uh, rather than like an ontological one. And they're making these really fallacious ontological arguments. Yeah, there's a binary here. Either evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology explains everything. And if that's the case, then it explains why screens exist too, right? Or evolutionary biology does not explain everything, right? And so right. then the whole force of the argument is lost. Um, since we're not, <laughs> right. like, we're not re- reductively like beholden to that sort of explanation, so exactly. and, and obviously, yeah, they, they want to jump between those two you know binaries when it's when it's fit. Uh, and you can imagine, like, you think the first, the first, like, the first, the first like animal who walks out of the ocean, like they're <laughs> like three years later. Fuck, man, we didn't evolve to walk on fucking land. Let's get back in there. <laughs> or like, yeah, the yeah. first conscious, the first conscious being is like, man. I loved it when I didn't wasn't like aware of my surroundings. That was so much better. We got to go back to that shit, right? Like obviously, that's, that's right. That's stupid, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Reductive but for some reason, it's a very <laughs> I, it's it's a very common thing. And I actually, without getting too far afield of this this interview, because we can start parsing it just soon here. But like, it reminds me of something that um, that like Mark Fisher used to write about. And on Twitter, there's an account that's called. Uh, Mark Fisher's ghost or Mark Fisher's haunt that I follow. And um, you could check them out because they tweet very much like Mark Fisher-esque kind of things. Um, But one of the ideas was that like living in late capitalism with the kind of cultural logic that you get that is oftentimes called post-modernity, right? Or or the post-modern condition. Um, What you get is this like need for a return to nature, And um, it's because we are so saturated in a world of alienation and a world of obfuscation and superficiality. And um, so there's this there's this tendency for this need for something. Right. Um, So oftentimes it's packaged as a fantasy, which is a return to a prelapsarian state of nature. Right. Which is why you get the popularity of paleo diets and functional fitness and um, doing things that are natural, you know, going out and touching nature. Now, here's the thing. I'm all about functional fitness and I'm all about going and fucking sitting in some sand and putting your feet in some sand and, you know, laying in some grass and touching a tree like I'm all about it. You know, like I want a little bit of that, like Walden lifestyle in my life. You know, give me that camper van, as I talked about uh, on the last episode or the episode before, whatever it was, you know, but it's, it's the fetishization of that as though that is the right thing for us. And that everything else is somehow a deviation from that ideal, from that kind of, um, foundation that is where the problem lies. Yeah. It's like, okay, so you feel awful in a social space, right? You're trying to figure out what's the problem here. Like what's the diagnosis? Well, what you're experiencing is a little thing we like to call social alienation, Right. And the answer is not, oh man, I was meant 
to like wait around in the bush or whatever. No, that's just like you reaching for something that seems obviously different than what you're experiencing now because you're experiencing heavy doses of social alienation. What you need is a better social space where you actually find what you're doing to be meaningful and valuable independent of everything else. Like that's that's what you need. And that might come by living in nature, right? That's certainly one of the candidates. Yeah. Um, but it certainly wouldn't be the case for everybody. But like it's, it's yeah, it's, this, it's reaching for this answer in some reductive explanation about our natural teleological fit in the world, which is always going to be way too one size fits all, way too reductive, way too yeah. teleologically based. When really what you're looking yeah. for is, is you're looking for something that you find meaningful in life and a, and a society that's built around making sure people get to discover things that they find meaningful. And then when they discover them, get to do them for at least enough of their life that it's not alienating. It's not, it's obviously it's a bit incohate and not super concrete, but that's, I mean, that seems to me like that's what's happening here. And we just don't want to, we don't want to acknowledge that's the real problem because it's so clear that our societies are not built to do those things, right? That we'd rather just think about leaving them than right. building them to be something better. Now, here's the one thing, though, that I also, I, and I haven't figured out exactly why I respond this way, but the, the other thing that Johan Hari said was, um, he said, He's, he's talking about this study from, I think, this, like, psychologist that was, like, uh, you know, working with a lot of these young boys who have, like, gotten addicted to, like, these online role-playing games. And he was saying they're escaping the real world and they're finding, you know, meaning, connection, purpose in these, um, like, digital scapes, right? And there's something that I just don't know that I like about that. To me, that seems like a very sort of 1980s, like we're amusing ourselves by turning on, you know, the idiot box or the boob tube, you know, kind of the Neil Postman kind of amusing ourselves to death kind of logic. When you are born in a world that is always already integrated with digital spaces or um, like augmented reality or virtual spaces, I'm not sure that we're escaping reality and finding solace there. That doesn't mean that that in the analog world, I mean, I don't even know how we can start thinking now about this. This is one of the issues. It's like, because the analog world, I kind of agree with like a sort of Zizekian psychoanalytic take, the analog world has always already been a sort of like um, virtual space, you know, um, that there's always this like in the symbolic- sense of like mediated- yeah, yeah, exactly. They're not Not in the sense of like screens and things like that, like in a physical sense, but in the sense that we're always sort of mediated by symbolic forms of, of rationality and symbolic forms of meaning that that kind of um, prevent a quote real connection with the with the real. You know, the real is always receding. It's always something you know beyond. Um, I guess we could say it's always excessive. Um, so for me, I'm not sure that like I like this language of it's like so because you don't have it's it's almost like because you don't play sports. And because you're not having um, good sex in the real world, therefore you go and you play Madden and you watch porn, right? Or like because young men don't go to war anymore um, and they just have these like boring lives and because oh we don't have – 
you know, or, or, or like the kind of left version of that is like, because we don't have social solidarity and worker solidarity, therefore we, we, we go live in these like digit spaces where we can get that, you know, and we get rewards and we get points and we find community and, and we're desired because you can play like, you can like walk around in the body of like fucking God of War guy. Who's like this just fucking, you know, carved out of stone, perfect being. And you're like, yeah, I can do anything. I just don't like there's something to that. There is definitely some sort of psychological element where we like to live vicariously through these superhero figures. Right. Um, That's one of the things that we love about superhero films. But that's also one of the things we love about Hollywood films from the fucking 1940s. You know, Sartre was writing about that in the 40s, about why American cinema is so different from French cinema. And it was because they just had these larger than life figures that he was like, oh, my God. You know, I I saw these kind of like excellent individual figures up on the screen that we just didn't have in France. The superstar, you know, the Hollywood star kind of thing. And it was kind of amazing to feel that impact empowerment as an individual. Um, and so I, I don't know that I just, I, there's something about this idea of escape reality that is not made me comfortable. And it's the same thing with like, like when people talk about like, um, the art that they're producing, they're like, well, if I can just give somebody like an escape from their lives for a little bit, I'm just, I don't know if there's something that makes me feel icky about that. And it doesn't seem to be quite coherent either. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, these ideas of escape and solace, like they're all, they're all kind of like circling around functional terms, right? So like, yeah, it seems to me like it depends whether something is an escape is a, dependent on its function in a system that's as like some sort of, you know, multifaceted system of, of, you know, things working together, whether it's an escape versus a deliverance, right? That all depends on the environment of the actual thing that's happening, right? So like, if it's the case that someone is going into a virtual social space because they have such a horrible life outside of that and they need to like cathartically expunge all the negative emotions in order to go back to that terrible space the next day, if they didn't do the virtual world thing, then they would just like become a school shooter or something, right? But that's obviously a pretty terrible situation, right? That's that's the yeah. alienation. Um, and then <laughs> the virtual world is, is merely serving as an escape, which is not a bad thing. Certainly it's better than the alternative of like mentally breaking down or hurting people, right? But that's certainly a situation that you would want to be ameliorated for good and not have to use the virtual space in that way. But that, you know, the same thing, the same virtual world could be used by somebody to the same degree, like same amount of time per day or whatever, and the same actual activities could be uh, experienced because someone's actually like in a community with people who are doing things together and creating projects and having friendships and relationships. Mm. And that would be great. And that would be intrinsically meaningful for them. And they wouldn't matter uh, what else happens in their day, right? They don't need it in the same way to expunge negative emotions or whatever that the other person did. And so like the same activities could play either of those roles depending upon the rest of the circumstances of that person's life. So it it wouldn't really have anything to do with the virtual world itself or the activities you engage in there that determines whether or not it's a healthy or a, you know, terribly unhealthy practice. It depends a lot on sort of the, the function that it's playing in that person's life, I would imagine. And of course the, the actual specifics of the virtual space would matter too, because you wouldn't find it to be as intrinsically meaningful and valuable if it was super exploitative, right? Um, yeah. If it was like, you know, using 
like gotcha elements, like gambling psychology to kind of manipulate you into buying stuff, like then you wouldn't find it as meaningful. So that would play a, a role for sure, uh, but it wouldn't be a, like an ultimately exhaustively determinant role in whether or not that space was good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I, I think what I would want to say then is it's not that you can't that there is no meaning in a virtual world because the virtual world is somehow like a degradation from um, a sort of like more pure conception of what it means to really live in a social world. I think for me, and this is where we can start kind of parsing the the, the title and then really working into the essay or the uh, interview, is that um, it's how is that virtual world constructed, right? If it's constructed according to a logic that is going to um, exacerbate that social alienation, then of course you can find certain degrees of meaning, but at the same time, there might be other counterfactors that are going to maybe intensify a sense of um, uh, feeling worthless or feeling like a cog in the machine um, or uh, 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 feeling like you can't be satisfied because you can never reach um, something. And so you're being fed the, the kind of diet of, you know, the desiring producing machine of a hyper-capitalist situation, right? Context. And that's what I think about when the essay says, can we have meaning in a virtual world or can we have a meaningful life? It's first of all, can is capacity, right? Are you capable? Is there power to do so? So and then we're talking about issues of capacity and ability. So then the next question is we, right? And I think it's the can we. So do we have the capacity? So who is this we? Right. Um, and and then I would say, to what extent is this we capable or able under the conditions, the larger societal conditions um, that allow for meaning to potentially be experienced in the first place? Right. Th that's the kind of question I would ask. And I think if the we is for, you know, the neurotypical, the um, the kind of typically able-bodied, um, the wealthy, um, the owners of the digital spaces, well then sure, like the we is, yeah, you could probably have a pretty fucking meaningful life. You know, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg is going to have a fucking really meaningful life in a virtual world, right? No, now, is it <laughs> His life is empty and formless and void, just like his <laughs> yeah, well. And then that's the question is like, what kind of meaning though, right? <laughs> like the meaning, the meaning that is determined by what type of ethical framework, right? But like, if you're somebody who um, doesn't have access because of other societal issues of inequality, are you going to be barred, right? From experiencing the fullness of meaning that is offered in that virtual scape. And I think for me, this goes down to the idea that meaning is something that is provided by the context, by the situation that determines the framework in which meaning can be experienced in the first place. So if you ask if you are able to have meaning for a set group of people, you have to first start asking about, well, what are the conditions that construct that virtual world? And if that virtual world is some sort of neo-feudalist platform, then the form of meaning that you would experience isn't going to be um, nothing, right? Like you can get a little bit of satisfaction, just like under capitalism in the 19th century, 
Um, without the, the virtual world, you could, yeah, you can experience meaning by joining a sports team or by playing music with your friends or by going to a loved one's birthday party. But it's, is it the fullness of meaning? Is it the fullness of purpose that we could experience under a different context? And that for me is the kind of most interesting thing to explore. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, that, I think that's basically what I was getting at with the idea that it depends yeah. upon the function it's serving in the larger economy of of meaning making, right? And that that's going to be different for different people. And if there's if the virtual world is is functioning as a release from your overwhelming social alienation, then I guess that's a good thing in one sense because you're getting a release as opposed to not. Um, but then that's obviously a, a terrible situation to be in, and the virtual world is, is really just kind of, if anything, masking the terrible situation you're living under. And I imagine anyone who's skeptical of virtual worlds is going to, or even maybe cynical about it, is going to think, well, that's just obviously going to be the case since there is so much alienation permeating all social spaces. The virtual isn't going to be different than that because it's only going to serve as, at best, a, an escape from those things, which mm-hmm. I think is probably largely true but at the same time they don't want to discount the fact that you know a lot of virtual spaces can serve as as um as like cathartic releases from the rest of the world and that's not it, itself a bad thing it's not a reason to reject the virtual world maybe a reason to reject the virtual world as a panacea since it's really you know an, an, like a, a release is not the same thing as a panacea right it's not actually curing anything it's just giving you enough to get through your day Right, it's just like a you know acetaminophen you take when you have a headache it doesn't solve the headache, um, and then yeah, so we, we would want to actually structure the social spaces, the sort of the more fundamental social spaces, to be such that you could have experiences in the social in the virtual world that complement them, um, you know, and, and serve as part of them um, as healthy social spaces rather than as forms of escape. That's going to depend not upon the virtual world so much as to uh, the, the way that it functions in the re- within the rest of the world, right? Altogether. Mm. Yeah. I mean, is, is, is it too oversimplified to kind of like map on the kind of like positive, uh, negative versus positive freedoms here? So like with the escape logic that like you escape into a virtual world, is that typically kind of like determined by this like negative form of freedom, which, which, you know, the West loves, right? We're free from a tyranny, free from oppression, free from the bad things, and then we can find something. But there isn't a lot of elaboration so much about like positive forms of liberty, positive forms of freedom, which is like, what are we free for? Like, what are we being capacitated to do? And so for me, then what I wonder is, is rather than just thinking of the virtual world as being like, okay, so it gives you something that the other world doesn't quite give you, or it allows you to kind of like decompress, or it gets you back to like a Like if you're stressed, it gets you back to like a zero state or something like that. What if we think about it in terms of not like rewards, but that there there is like a positive type of incentive that can um, like kind of, I don't even know how to frame it, but that it would like qualitatively offer you something positive for how to think about reality and life and meaning and money and sex and relationships and, um, and art and things like that in a virtual world. Because it actually offers you some sort of positive framework, some sort of structure um, that would actually give you proactive and qualitative value sets within that world itself. And then the question would be, if you do find a, a, a really robust form of meaning in that virtual world based on this kind of like conception of like a positive framework, then you could even ask, well, can you have, can you live a meaningful life in a non-virtual world, right? Like. 
is that what, what, what does that mean? And and as like the virtual world becomes more ubiquitous, like I don't think it's a silly question to then flip the question around and put it onto um, put the onus onto the like analog world, um, for lack of a better term. Do you know? Yeah, I mean, like this is what I was getting at with the with the transcendental question, right? I mean, before you can even answer the question, can we have a meaningful life in the virtual world? You have to answer the question, what is a meaningful life in the first place? That's obviously a much more fundamental philosophical question that you'd have to answer before you can apply it to virtual worlds, right? What does a meaningful life look like in the analog world? Um, and like, there's there's a paradox here, right? This is kind of an idea I like to play with that there's a sort of paradox of meaningfulness where there's some sense in which a meaningful life is is subjective or relative to each person, right? There's some sense in which that's certainly true. Anyone who thinks mm-hmm. that like there's one size fits all of meaningfulness doesn't really seem to understand how like meaningfulness seems to work in the occasions in which we experience it, right? There's that classic uh, Thomas Nagel argument about how if, if meaning was just about having a purpose and if we just find out what our purpose is, then we'll have a meaningful life. Then if one day we found out Though actually human beings were bred as a scientific experiment on Earth by giant aliens, and tomorrow they're going to come and eat us. We're actually a garden, and our big brains are the juiciest, you know, yummiest (laughs) things that these aliens eat. I mean, technically, we would find out what our purpose is. We have an ultimate purpose. It's to be a salad for these aliens, right? But that wouldn't Mm -hmm. be meaningful, at all, right? So it, it can't just be like that, that there's one size fits all purpose for everybody. And if we just find out what that is, then we'll we'll find a meaning in it. No, like purpose mm-hmm. comes apart from meaning in that sense, right? So uh, there's some sense in which it's it's subjective, but it's also there's some sense in which it's I mean not subjective because it's it's relative would be the proper term there, right? To each person. Um mm-hmm. <clears throat> and there's some sense probably in which it's subjective and that there's a a level of like creation or meaning making that occurs for individuals, right? Mm. Especially when you consider the fact that, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying just a second ago, um, the, the the big problem with like the the sort of negative liberty associations is just this kind of assumption that like we just kind of find out and and, and like decide what we're going to do with our lives as if we kind of have a list of options of things you can do when you're bored and like you start checking off the ones that you, mm. you want to do. And it's like, no, Clearly, we're socialized into our desires. Like this is like sociology 101, right? Like it's not that all of a sudden in 1998, when Zoomers started getting born, people liked virtual worlds more than before 1998. That's just how it happened to be. No, like because they grew up with virtual worlds around them all the time, they became acclimated to them and socialized into them and started liking them more. Like that's right. Des- you don't choose your wants, right? You don't. You, you can have second order wants, right? But even those probably you don't choose for the most part. Um, so like you, you can't just have this, this notion that we go into life just choosing based on some like rational decision procedure what you want in life. No, you're socialized into those things and that's totally okay. Um, at the same time, there's like something kind of objective and not up to us about what's meaningful. And I think this is probably more controversial for people nowadays, but I think it's true. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to admit it alongside the, the claim about the, the relativism of meaning for each person. And that, like, it's a very common thing. And you and I have both experienced this. You can think you're living a meaningful life and then realize you're not. Like, that's a real thing that happens for people. 
right? This kind of deconstruction of, of one's meaningful life. You can think you're living a significant, meaningful life and then realize, oh, I was wrong. Not just like I changed my mind. No, I was wrong previously. And so now, mm. now I have a reason to not live that life anymore because I was wrong. Like I certainly experienced that. I really thought for a long time that like living in a, in what I now think of as kind of a cultic Christian community um, was meaningful and was like ultimately meaningful for me. Yeah. Right. And it really was felt that way. Right. In a way that I don't think I was deceived about in, in terms of like thinking it was, you know, really meaningful to me. It was, um, but it was bad. <laughs> it was bad and it was unhealthy and it was um, like in many ways, like slowly destroying my soul. And so, and that was a good reason, realizing those things was a good reason to leave it. I didn't just change yeah. my mind about what I thought was meaningful. I had a realization, like a revelation about my previous life and that I was wrong about things, right? Mm. I wasn't wrong about the fact that I found meaning in things, but I was wrong to think that they were actually meaningful, right? This is like an important distinction between those two things. It's kind of nuanced, but it's there. And 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 real quick, don't lose your train of thought, please. But I just because this is just like one of my hobby horses, right? This is also for me part of the reason why I am so empathetic to people who are still um, immersed in that meaning world or that meaning framework, because. I think so many times if you never experienced that, it just looks like these people are just bad faith actors and they're just assholes and they just want to like harm other people and they just hate other people rather than recognizing, no, no, it like you really think like with, with every ounce of you in the same way that the center lib progressive and in the same way that the hardcore MLM and in the same way that some other fucking person really, really everything about them is, is, is filtered through this prism that that world is meaningful and that all of your purposes derive from what you think is the highest and most important thing in the world. And I think when you get that, when you see that, not only can you empathize with them, but then I think you can also start to figure out how to communicate with them so that you can yeah. challenge them and help them to see other forms of meaning possibilities, right? Other worlds of meaning out there. And I think that's that's really important for us too. Sorry, I know that's a little bit off track, but for me, that's actually, I love the way you're saying that because that's really kind of like an important way of understanding it. No, I think that's, like, that's exactly like the, the end goal of it ethically, right? Is that having this realization about the kind of paradox of meaningfulness is to be able to communicate with people with empathy, even when you're challenging them, right? And I know you often say like, this is the thing I have to pair it from you is, you know, when you're around uh, Christians, you become kind of the resident atheist. And when you're around like, you know, more academic and agnostic and atheist, you're, you become like a resident uh, Christian defender, right? Um, and I think that that's part of it is like having that experience in many ways attunes you and makes you sensitive to this paradox and then allows you to engage empathetically with people even when you're in the mode of being like a gadfly, like a challenger, right? It's an emphatic, uh, empathic kind of um, challenging or criticism. And that's a mode that I think is, I mean, it's probably the mode that makes me want to do philosophy. And I, I gather this is the same for you too, because we have that same way of kind of thinking about things. Um, but yeah, I mean, ethically, that's the, I think the end goal of, of this whole kind of exploration, this idea. And yeah, all I was going um, for in the end with that idea of the paradox of meaningfulness is, 
I think that we probably need to admit something like that, right? That 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 meaningfulness mm. is is both in, in an important sense relative, um, probably also in an important sense subjective, and that there's some degree of like creation that happens, subjective creation that happens in making meaningfulness, but that it's not wholly subjective. It's not the kind of like, I mean, maybe like Nietzschean kind of meaning making where you can kind of, maybe this is not fair to Nietzsche, but like voluntarily decide what you want, right? Um, Hmm. That I don't think happens, um, although there's a grain of truth there. There's something kind of objective, um, not necessarily absolute, but objective that's beyond, that transcends sort of subjective creation, um, such that we would have to acknowledge it as being like valuable, um, and not just because we decided that it is, but because we actually think that it that it is like tout court, like all things considered, right? Mm. And you have to have both of those intentions. It's kind of a Kierkegaardian, like holding both of the thoughts in mind at the same time, right? Because if you go too far on one side or the other, you end up with like you know some like some like extreme kind of Nietzscheanism on one side, or like an extreme kind of absolutism. On the other, and both I think are are pretty anathema to how meaning is actually experienced in life. You you really do have to have the paradox in mind at all times. I think mm. um, that just to say, like, I mean, obviously, if there's you know counter arguments, people want to present that idea more than willing to listen to it. But if you just like work with me for a moment and kind of assume something like that is true, then that means. How do you have a meaningful life in a virtual world? Man, fuck, I can barely figure out how to have it in the real world, in like the non-virtual <laughs> world. It involves this like Kierkegaardian holding of a paradox in your mind continuously yeah. in tension and all the existential dread that comes from holding a paradox in mind is like your governing principle of your life. Like, the, what the fuck, man? Can we just talk about that for a while first before we talk about like how it works in virtual worlds? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Okay, at this point, let's let's talk a little bit about Chalmers and what he offers. Um, the first thing I would say is that uh, he basically makes this statement that he obviously is not trying to say that we abandon physical reality. It would be like he says that it's like a supplement to physical reality. That's how he thinks of the virtual world, which again is prioritizing – one form of embodied reality with another, which I wonder if is um, an historical and contingent remark and that maybe 500 years from now, you know, living in a black mirror future, um, it might be very different, right? So I, I think that even, even his hypothesis here is, is a bit wedded to um, a sort of like, uh, like an historical contingent set of circumstances. But this is the thing that he said that kind of caught me most off guard. I I really don't disagree with too much of what he was saying. Um, But with this, I I worry about this. I find this really intriguing and I I worry about this. He said, um, he said, rather than living in a video game, my analogy would be more like we're moving to a new uninhabited country and setting up a society. Now, the reason it caught my attention was because of a history of colonialism that has kind of um, given impetus to this spirit to try to colonize new lands or try to let's let's even not front load it. 
And let's say that, oh, but Chalmers isn't talking about colonizing these new lands because we're building these new lands, right? They're uninhabited. They're, the difference maybe even between a virtual world is that they are actually totally uninhabited. There are no resources that can be exploited. And that, I think, is where the problem lies because that's not true because data is a resource and time is a resource. So actually, the way I think of this virtual landscape, this uninhabited landscape that he's talking about is the um, capitalist manufacture of new terrains of scarcity that will then be used to leverage positions of power for future inhabitants who have the capacity, right, that goes back to the we, who have the capacity to set up camp or to build or to invest in that place in in the first instance. Um, and then that worries me because then you're just kind of turning this virtual world into a different form of the process of acidization, this maybe neo-feudal acidization that um, is kind of staring us in the face as our, as, as our futures. So that was the, like, the quote that initially stood out for me and maybe be like, hmm, that makes me worried, not because it's like, you, again, you can't have any meaning in a virtual world, but it's that the virtual world is going to be so conditioned by this potential logic that it makes me think that, that that we won't be able to think outside of a world that is inscribed in the first place in terms of what meaning might even be um, by a logic of, of power asymmetry. And then it's going to be enclosed in the very sort of capitalist sense of enclosure where certain parts are going to be privatized and purchased and then cordoned off for other people or cordoned off from other people. And then it's going to be quantified. And then it's that level of the quantification of these spaces that is going to be used for the maximization of profits and then in turn power asymmetries. And that for me is the real issue. Um, not that you can't have everyday communism where you invite a friend over and say, hey, you want to come hang out on my little digital rescue farm? Sure, of course, you could do that. But um, that's going to be the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I mean, it, it does sound, this is pretty germane to what we were talking about before. Um, right. And that the, the, the function that the, the virtual space serves in the greater uh, like social schema. And that there's this kind of fantasy that we could like, get in a spaceship and go to the Andromeda galaxy and like wake up from our cryogenic chambers and be completely free of all socialization <laughs> and all social norms that exist and just, and just create human society from the ground up with no priors. And it's like, dude, you're doing all this while you're eating chips in like your basement. You still have to like eat and sleep and make enough money to not die. Like as long as that fundamental reality exists beneath the virtual space, it's going to be governed by existing social norms and laws and everything else. Like you can't have, that's, it's a fantasy to have that completely free space, even if there's some degree of, of freedom allowed in sort of creating new norms and new forms of socialization. I'm sure that's true, right? That's, that's true in any form of community, which you start anew, you have some degree of freedom, but yeah, it's a, it's a fantasy to think of it as like, creating a new society from the ground up, that obviously never happens. It always you know, is a, like a, you know, a dialectical process through whatever the previous society was. 
Yeah, well, even, yeah, even more than that for me is like, but also the, still the forms of rationality, if they're dictated by a logic of exchange relations or a logic of exploitation, um, then you're still going to treat people and you're still going to think the same way in this virtual world that we're already bemoaning in the non-virtual world now. So like I'm also concerned with how this works in reproducing forms of thought, like as capitalist rationality, like it's just going to be like a sort of um, like virtual exacerbation of that tendency in this new scape, right? It's not going to be that somehow we start connecting more with our loved ones and start thinking more outside of these, these kind of, um, uh, constraining forms of thought that are wedded to the socioeconomic system that already teaches us to treat humans like objects of consumption, right? Or that teaches us to treat nature as an object of consumption. Those things are going to be translated over because they're going to be coded into the very virtual world in the first place. That's my real condition. That's my real concern. Yeah, I mean, the, the function of the virtual space will be to serve this sort of, you know, aesthetization um, function. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's going to be terrible if it's actually serving that function, even if it has this veneer of, of freedom from um, the kind of base, the, like the social base underneath it. It's not going to really have that. You've got to build co-op virtual worlds, bro, where that's what we got to build, you know? I mean, do, it doesn't matter as long as you got to, as long as you got to sell your labor to, to not die. <laughs> Yeah, but what if we can build what if we can build co-op virtual worlds that we can also we can take the data production from, put them into sovereign wealth funds, into social wealth funds, and that that's how you make a living is um, just the kind of growing asset value of this co-op space then turns was, into everybody's that, job. Wasn't that your yeah. idea of everybody has an OnlyFans? We only ever spend our money on other people's OnlyFans. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the best idea you've had yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it would be, man. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll tell you I, what, Tech Bros. Give us social global socialism first, then the metaverse. <laughs> right? In that order. Yeah, exactly. Come on, man. <laughs> or, or do you think we can do it the other way? That's what I wonder. Could we just um, find some really good coders and programmers to build this digital space for us that that is that is pre-coded for this more equitable society and then we can go then it'll have like a rebounding effect or like a retroactive effect onto the physical world and it'll change the physical world because people will see like the um the possibilities for one asset valuation uh, and and growth but in a way that is entirely radical and equitable right yeah, I mean, what I'll say to that is I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it also kind of sounds like, hey, Scarlett Johansson just called and she wants to go out with you. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not impossible that that's happening, but that's also <laughs> exactly what someone who's going to kill me and steal all my stuff would say. So Yeah, maybe maybe this is what they mean when they say they want fully automated gay space communism. This is the world <laughs> This is it, man. This is the fully virtualized, automated, gay space communism. This is it. What they mean by space is virtual space. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I certainly I don't, know. don't see any reason why I couldn't play a role there. Okay, no, I, have a, I have a question for you, though, before we end up yeah, yeah. on this uh, topic. So okay. one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately, and this is, this is kind of tangential to what we were just talking about. So there's one thing that a lot of, and Chalmers even mentions this, where like 
uh, a lot of people talk about this as well regarding like virtual spaces, that there's nothing inherently different between a virtual space and a sort of quote unquote real or analog space in terms of being able to do all the things we find to be important in life, right? Having relationships, communicating, creating things, whatever, right? It's all just as possible in a virtual space as a, a non-virtual space. And and largely, like, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. I'm certainly going to reject, like, the extreme view that there's something fake about virtual spaces that disables them from any of those things being possible, right? That's that's a, a bad view, I think, and a kind of naive one. Um, and certainly virtual spaces are coming, right? They're, they're not going to go away. So we have to think about how to use them appropriately and in and, and a way that's you know valuable and matters to us. But has the last two years <laughs> with the pandemic and with COVID and stuff, there's something that I find pretty intractable about the argument that there's something very important about being within physical proximity of other people. Mm. And maybe also of things in the world. Not necessarily nature in this like fetishized sense of like, hey, there's trees yeah. here. Um, but just like in the world. Um, that's that's maybe not necessary or su- like or sufficient for um all the things we find important and valuable and, and meaningful and all that kind of stuff, but like pretty vital. Not to the point of being necessary. But like really fucking important, really central in the web of meaning making yeah. such that – and I think I, I, I've thought this more as we've become more sort of mediated by uh, Zoom and stuff like that. And just the level of struggle that it takes to communicate with somebody effectively via like Zoom or a screen – um, and I even feel this bit about phone calls. Like I just don't like phone calls because of how alienated I feel from the actual act of communication with somebody, mm. and and being able to actually talk to somebody that you care about in person is just such a magical thing now, <laughs> in a way that I just was taking for granted, you know, yeah. four times. Um, one explanation of this experience, and I think all of us have had. Like this is not unique to me. Um, one explanation is like that's just. Because the current um, forms of virtual mediation are poor. And once we improve them, this will go away. And it will be indistinguishable from physical proximity, you know, communications or whatever. Um, and I, I think I I think I really believed that two years ago. And I'm kind of skeptical of that now. There's and not, not in the sense that I'm totally like, you know, off board, but I'm I'm worried, uh, I'm concerned that maybe there is something about physical proximity to persons, especially, but also maybe to other things in the world, that just, it just matters in a way that you can't, it's irreducible, right? Yeah. And so even if I'm still comfortable with virtual worlds and spaces becoming more ubiquitous, I am a bit worried about them becoming too, there's a certain threshold where they become too ubiquitous, that there's there's something lost in the end. Mm. I don't know. I'm still working through this and I'm not sure exactly how to think about it. Um, but I'm curious what you think about that, especially with regard to experiences over the last couple of years. Can I contradict myself very well? You I can will contradict myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so this is my contradiction of my, of everything I just said, uh, in the past little bit, there is research that talks about, you know, how there are natural frequencies, right? That the earth's frequency, it's something like 7.83 Hertz, 
Um, it's called like the Schumann frequency, I think, something like that. And it basically is this idea that there is this pulsation that is um, earth earth dependent, right? So there's something about the 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 quote natural world, right? Which also I'm I'm using that with air quotes because I'm holding that term very lightly, but. There is something about frequencies that exist in, let's say, embodied reality, physical reality, right? And I think that um, for me, this is also tied into what I develop in my book, um, derived from Sartre's work on, on the practical inert and seriality. There is a sense in which there are limits and demands that the physical world exert on us, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm sitting right now at a, at a table and I'm looking out at a tree and, um, and I have a, a, a window in front of me that's preventing me from reaching out and touching the tree. So I can't touch it, but I can see it. So there are limits and there are demands. One, the limit is that I can't touch the tree, but the demand is that I'm sort of being forced in a way or compelled, constrained with how I'm able to actually comport to this tree in the first place. And that is that I'm, I'm looking at it I, and I have to look at it. Now, what I can do as a human is I can walk over and I can open the window and I can reach out and I can grab it or I can go outside and I can climb. So there are ways around it. But every step of the way, I'm always confronted with this like various dimensions of limits and demands. And some of those limits and demands are exerting more pressure on me, let's say, than others, right? Um, or or they're, they're calling me with like a, a more intensified enticement even, like evocation, than others, right? So I think of it in terms of this, a virtual world seems to operate at different speeds or flows of intensity with regards to those limits and demands, right? So uh, a perfect example is, is like if I go to the beach and I'm hanging out with my friends and we're having a conversation, that conversation can only take place within certain physical limits. Like I can't talk at a certain speed and there are only five of us, right? Um, so I don't have like a hundred notifications and a hundred pressures. And if I'm, if I'm quote, really present with my friends at the beach, there are certain sort of, um, limitations on the one frequency, but also the limits and the demands that are going to be imposed upon me. Whereas if I'm sitting at home and I'm watching, um, a movie on, uh, on Netflix, but at the same time I'm scrolling through Instagram, but I'm also checking on projects in Basecamp, and I'm also looking on Slack and I'm also on Twitter and I'm also on WhatsApp and I just got a notification and then I got a missed call and then I'm like, oh shoot, I've got these emails that I've got to check. And then I've got these other things, the, the speed and the flows of, um, the, the intensity of the limits and the demands, um, seem to be different. They seem to be faster. They seem to be more intense. Right. Um, and that for me, I think is maybe one of the ways to kind of understand this. It's, it's not about, um, when you're in the physical world, there are, there are no limits and demands, but then when you're, you know, in the digital world, ah, it's just too much. It's, it's, it's constant. It's more about like the intensity of those limits and those demands. And I think, I think maybe that's one way to think about this. And I don't know, and this is where I, I feel like I'm being a little bit of a, con it feels like I might be contradicting myself because now I'm like, oh, but wait a second. It sounds like it's better. I don't know that it's better then to just be present with people all the time than it is to have access to those other flows or, or intensities of limits and demands in a, a digital or virtual world. Uh, I just know that it's different. 
And right now, that's all I can say definitively. I think there that there are differences. And I would even say maybe there are qualitative differences. And then once once I feel more comfortable fleshing out what those qualitative differences are, then I would feel more comfortable making a value judgment about one being better than the other. Even though I will flippantly say like it's better one way or the other for certain things. I think really philosophically, I think that I'm not quite sure yet in what ways one is better than the other and to what extent it's better. And those are the kinds of questions. And that's the framing of how I would want to address that issue. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, man, I think I'm willing to say it's better. (laughs) Um, And that doesn't mean that you never do the virtual space, right? Obviously, because sometimes you can't like it's sometimes second best is actually pretty damn good. Right. Um, Especially like, you know, someone, if you're, you know, your buddy lives in Australia and you live in the United States, like what the fuck else are you going to do? Um, and as we improve but, the, the, but the it's only worlds, better, but it's only better because the, we, we were missing something in the ways that we've constructed those, those digital spaces. No. Yeah. Right. But the, the very nature of something being virtual, something is only virtual relative to something else. That's what virtual is. Right. It's not, yeah. it doesn't wear the pants in in the family of the semantic family, right? Something is virtual relative to something quote unquote real. So it seems to me like there's always going to be a sense with the virtual is going to be, since it's relative to some other space, right? It's going to be lacking, lacking in the sense of relative to a different space, right? It lacks something that the other thing it's defined against has. And we're in the kind of things we're talking about here, whereas physical proximity versus not, I think at least in regard to the, the important meaning-making activities, like relationships and projects and creations and appreciations of things and all that kind of stuff, right? The, th- the class of things we, we tend to consider as being intrinsically valuable, it does seem to me like there's an important sense in which we probably need to prioritize the physical proximity stuff such that the virtual world becomes a supplement that comes mm. in when we can't do the physical proximity stuff for whatever reason, because of spatial reasons or pandemic reasons or whatever, right? And that it's good to hold on to that probably. And, you know, it's not because of some naive sense in which the physical, you know, world is unmediated and the virtual world's mediated and a mediation is always bad and blah, blah, blah. No, that's totally wrong. Like that's naive and superficial and like, no, like I'm post-Kantian it's all mediated all the way down, right? It's all mediation. That's not the answer. That's not the reason. <laughs> right. Uh, it's got nothing to do with mediated versus unmediated. It's got everything okay. to do with the fact that like the the sort of the conditions under which we experience these meaning-making activities, right? Are like consciousness and rationality, right? Phenomenal consciousness, because you can experience things. You're a being that experiences things, maybe as a living being too. I'm not sure about that. But at the very least, like, meaning-making involves experiential consciousness, right? And then also for, like, you know, adult human beings or whatever, rationality in the broad sense of, like, having reasons for what you do, right? Not in terms of, like, some, you know, Spock level of, like, ideal rationality. Um, Those two loci, right, are, like, the conditions of our our meaning-making. And those two things aren't functional, like they're just they're just like things about us. They're just like features or capacities that we have, right? They don't have yeah. like a a better or worse necessary. I mean, rationality is different because there's like a sense in which you can act for bad reasons, so that's different. But like at the very least, with consciousness, it just is a thing. It just like you have experiential consciousness. It's not it's not functional for any other thing. 
right? It serves mm-hmm. certain purposes for sure, but itself like isn't definitionally functional. So like if you end up having like an artistic experience with something in the room with it, that really is different than having it over a video screen. And like, I'm, I think I'm comfortable with saying the other one is lacking in an important way, um, mm-hmm. or at least might be lacking. Maybe not necessarily, because it could depend upon the actual piece of art. Maybe it's a specifically digital one or whatever, right? Or the point of it is to be mediated with extra layers. That's possible too. Um, and I certainly think that's the case with like communicative experiences. It's something about having a communicative experience when you're having a conversation with someone over beers right next to them. That's that I find that more meaningful. And I don't think that I'm fetishizing. And that is, I find that more meaningful than doing it over Zoom. And I don't think it's just, you can fetishize that, I think, but it's not, that's not the like fundamental reason why I find that more meaningful. I think there's something about having the full range of conscious experience being utilized in that setting that definitionally Mm. virtual worlds can't do by nature of being virtual. Virtual just means not quite like the other thing, (laughs) right? That's what virtual means. So yeah, um, this post-pandemic um, trad teleology, Troy, is intriguing me. I um, I like it. No, no teleology. <laughs> Consciousness and rationality are not functional. They do not <laughs> exist on a grand scheme towards the end of history or absolute spirit or whatever. Totally non-global teleology. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is – Yeah, no, no. I And I dig what you're saying. I think one – this is a really nuanced point, and I don't even know how to flesh it out without falling into one of those traps of sounding like you're just being a functionalist or, um, you know, or, or that you're espousing some sort of like um, telos. There's, there's a way here to, to articulate this, but I don't know quite how to frame it. And I'm interested in it because, because again, this is, this is, on uh, this is where I'm always split, and I feel like I'm not a Gemini, but I feel like I should be because, <laughs> like, I'm fucking torn between two ways of being. Um, one is this sort of like there is no distinction between the virtual and the actual, ultimately, but they kind of like co here and they're like obverse versions of themselves, and we've always already been virtualized, kind of thinking, you know, a very sort of monist type of thing. And then there's another side of me that's like, yeah, but you know what, man, I do, I do agree with you. And there is something qualitatively better about going to a live music show and sitting and just hugging somebody, um, you know, that you don't get, that you fundamentally do not get in a digital space and you cannot get right. Like maybe there's like, it is, you, it is impossible right? There is a fundamental limit. And so I'm torn between those two and I don't really know how to proceed. And I'm constantly trying to figure out how to navigate that tension. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely still in the like exploratory phase with it too. Um, I don't mean to sound as, as dogmatic as I probably came off about it. Yeah. Cause you know, the obvious rejoinder is like, yeah, that's just a feature of the, of the kind of poor virtual worlds that we have. And then once they're yeah advanced to the degree where phenomenologically your digital experience will be indistinguishable from your analog experience. But that's like a God, that's just like a God of the gaps kind of argument, you know? I mean, part of it's like, okay, in like 5,000 years <laughs> um, with this promised technology, which never actually ever comes to 
comes to the fore, right? It's like fucking self-driving cars, man. Like we were supposed to have those things 15 fucking years ago, right? Now all they do is <laughs> run over kids. Um, oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Extra points. So you, yeah. Part of it's that. But part of it's like I, I still want to explore the idea that, okay, even if I had a phenomenologically identical experience in a digital or virtual world that I did in physical proximity with something, as long as I knew I wasn't in physical proximity, because obviously if they're, you know, if you're like being tricked or whatever, it's a whole different story. And that that's all, that gets back to the question of like, can you find something meaningful and be wrong about it? You know, question from before. Um, yeah. So like move that off to the side, it's a different question. Like if I know that I'm not in physical proximity, I don't know, I still... I'm, I'm drawn a bit, I'm tugged a little bit by this idea that uh, even that knowledge would, would in some sense, um, make it second best. Not mm. bad, right? Not to be rejected, not to be, you know, it still plays a super important role in, in um, our meaning making in our relationships, right? Because, you know, you can't have physical proximity with everything. So it's super important, right? But I do still think there's a sense in which probably there's a like priority relation there where Physical proximity probably means something, and, I, and I'm not sure yet how to justify it fully. Um, but the last two years have just have just made me interested in that and, and, and thinking more about it. Maybe, maybe there's something there. Maybe it's totally a uh, a lost cause, um, like the conceptual trajectory there. But something to think about. I mean, it, it probably has. There's some really interesting kind of ways to maybe explore this with, like, you know, embodied reality and affect theory, and and even though I don't want to just be like, it's the Hertz, man, it's the natural Hertz, seven point eight or whatever <laughs> the fuck it is, you know, that's what it is. It's 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 the gravitational pull between objects in a physical reality that you don't quite, they, they can't be, you know, emulated, or even if they are simulated in a virtual world, they won't have the same sort of experience on our embodied realities. But there is something, we are fucking embodied creatures, right? Like, you know, there's something about the sense perceptions that, that like poking my, my body or, or giving me like, um, you know, chills or like a, a pleasurable experience and taste and smell the, the senses that we have that, that are, are integral to, um, the experiences that we have in building meaning and value and purpose um, in in our world. So there is something about it that a disembodied reality. I I, I just I just I'm not I, I'm not fully willing to think that it can be um, reproduced. Uh, sometimes I, I don't want to I don't want to say it can't be, but but I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, I honestly, sometimes I, I do just stand there and I say, you know what, man, I just don't fucking know. And I just want to get a camper van. And then I'll tell you, <laughs> after I have a camper van and I spend six months, um, you know, just working and traveling um, from my camper van, I'll tell you if I have tapped into the natural frequency and then we'll be able to talk. Yeah, and and you're, you are right that the God of the Gaps thing is an important point because like give us the phenomenologically identical virtual world first, and then we'll talk about this like <laughs> yes. really base level conceptual problem. Uh, until then, there's clearly a, a like de facto or a pragmatic priority relation of physical reality uh, to virtual one. For now, at least, like it's a placeholder until you can give us the phenomenological identical one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the discussion there, brother, and uh, let's move into our final segment of the show, yeah? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so this is called The Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to talk about something that's giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Troy, what has got you smiling at the moment? Yeah, so I'll be quick since we're running a little long here. 
Um, I've been watching a TV show from HBO called How To with John Wilson. Have you heard of it? No, I've not. Oh, it's um, it's great. Totally up your alley. Uh, John Wilson, he's a documentarian from uh, New York City. Um, And he's kind of I think the show is produced by Nathan Fielder, who did that show. Nathan, for you. Did you ever watch that? Oh, yeah, 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 I did. Yeah, it's fan- Nathan Free is fantastic. It's one of my favorite uh, shows of the past, or like non-traditional shows of the past like decade. Um, uh, it's kind of like the idea for Nathan For You, the, the kind of original of these kinds of shows was uh, Nathan Fielder would play this like kind of like life career coach who would go and try to help people with businesses, like fix their businesses, like a kind of, you know, um, uh, what do you call those shows that they go into your house and they like make up your house and make it all nice? Yeah, like Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Yeah, or like makeover something shows. Like that. You know, makeover it's like shows. that, that but absurdist because Nathan is terrible at his job, and then in being <laughs> absurdist though, it also ends up with some like really interesting and nuanced, almost philosophical takes on like the nature of what the person is doing. So it's really deep while also being absurd. Uh, and How to with John Wilson is kind of similar. And that vein, and Nathan Fielder produces it, so there's definite connection there. The basic idea is John Wilson is this really kind of nerdy, introverted, um, comes across as not being terribly like clever, kind of kind of a, kind of an idiot a little bit. And he just the the kind of conceit of the show is he just walks around New York recording random things happening, and then kind of opines on them and and puts a general theme on how all the things in this episode are kind of a lesson in how to do something basic in life. So like one of them is um, how to improve your memory. And he ends up like following this rabbit trail to where he, where he starts exploring the Mandela effect and goes to a, which if people don't know the Mandela effect is the um, kind of like a, a mass, almost like minor psychosis where a bunch of people remember something really basic as being different than it actually is. Without having any connection to each other. So like Mm. people who think Nelson Mandela died in prison, that's why I got the name Mandela effect. Like a lot of people apparently think that, even though it didn't happen. Uh, Another classic one, which I was a a quote unquote victim of, is like the Berenstein Bears. I I thought for sure the Berenstein Bears, that little um, kid's book from like the 80s. The Bernstein Bears? Was spelled S-T-E-I-N. Oh, instead of Berenstein? Yeah, 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 yeah. Stain bears. I, I could would have sworn that's not true, <laughs> but apparently it's always been bearing stain bears. Anyway, there's a bunch of things just like that, and so he ends up at a conference of people who were talking about the Mandela effect and how it's like evidence of uh, timelines crossing or aliens or whatever, right? And just like ends up there after talking about how memory works and just kind of following threads. Right, it's a very much a following threads kind of a thing. Um, the best episode I think of, of what I've seen is how to cook the perfect risotto, where it's the only episode that I've seen so far where it's like he started filming it during the pandemic, and so the the basic idea is John Wilson's landlady um, makes him food all the time, and he's very thankful for her for doing that, and she's like Eastern European or something and very adorable. And so he wants to, to say thank you to her by making her her favorite dish, which is risotto. And so he starts like making risotto and keeps keeps like doing it poorly and failing at it. And keep trying to do it, do it better, and get better cookware and stuff. And he keeps failing at it. And it become <laughs> and then the pandemic happens, and so like 
he can't see his landlady anymore because she's older and immunocompromised. And he's so sad that he can't make this risotto for her. And it becomes this like e- extreme existential rumination on the pandemic and isolation and, and trying to do things for people you love but failing. <laughs> it's like incredibly deep in this most absurd way. I, I don't know how to describe it other than to say it's got to be the most philosophical show on television while also being completely original and also, I think, incredibly entertaining and funny. Um. Other than that, I would just say, if any of that sounds interesting to you, you got to go on HBO and watch How To with John Wilson. I can't imagine anybody who listens to our show <laughs> as not liking this really weird, <laughs> idiosyncratic, deep but absurd 30-minute television show. It's wonderful. Well, I'm looking at it right now. I had never even heard of this. This is like, there's just so much shit. So much good stuff slips through my... Uh slips through the cracks, right? It's off my radar. This is, this sounds great though. Yeah, it's really great. Just half an hour. Definitely, uh, the kind of thing you can watch with, with a partner or a friend. And, and it's, it's documentary. It's not mockumentary. So it's not scripted. I I mean, I I don't think it's scripted. It certainly, it it plays itself off as I just recorded a bunch of B-roll and now I'm compiling it together and putting a narrative <laughs> on top of it. It comes okay. off really ham-fisted in that way. But then mm. in the but then like 20 minutes into every episode, you're like, holy shit, this is like really deep. <laughs> this must have been planned from the beginning. So it's really unclear whether or not it's is scripted in a particular way to get to a deep philosophical point or just totally yeah. off the cuff. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking about I'm I'm actually looking on uh the authority of all authorities, Wikipedia, to see about John Wilson's life. <laughs> um, I guess, is this like his first real big thing? Uh, yeah, I think he's just done no. some documentary shorts that I had never heard of, and that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It looks like he'd done some stuff. Vimeo asked him to make a documentary about Sundance. It caught the attention of Nathan Fielder. That's how they found each other. That's how they started collaborating, and it led to How To. Dang, that's really cool, man. Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm into it. I'm into it. He's a young yeah, it's dude. Yeah, it's 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 very much up your alley. I think you'll like it a lot. It's, it's <laughs> okay. pretty avant garde. Well, well, it's avant garde while also being just viscerally entertaining. That's a pretty hard <laughs> thing to match. Yeah, it's like that's like right in my wheelhouse. I've been thinking about that a lot lately because you know how I'm just like frustrated with the the state of media today. There's just. I don't know. It just like all the acting's the same, all the script writing's the same, all the drama's the same. It's like they're they're just telling the same stories over and over again, but with like maybe like little bits of different bad guys. Like it used to be Russia as the bad guy, and then it was like North Korea as the bad guy, and then Russia, I guess, is making a comeback now as the bad guy. But I don't know. It's like it's all it's all like and obviously I'm talking just about like action films there, but it's just it's just that there's like a formula that is like that everyone follows and. I just, because there's so much, that formula just really gets played to death and there's not a lot of fresh stuff, right? Or at least- Yeah, it's just boring, yeah. Yeah, a lot of that stuff is. And so I'm really interested in finding these fresh fresh ones, like like This Way Up, right? Remember I told you about This Way Up? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's real. Did you watch it? Did you watch it eventually? No, I haven't, but I'm glad you, re- you mentioned that because I know I like Ashling B a lot, so I'm going to... She's great. She's that. great. And I just find it really fresh and really interesting, you know? And we just watched um, Station Eleven, the miniseries based on the book, which was your Sticky Leaves, what, three episodes ago? 
Um, and we, I, I fucking loved it. I don't know. Did you watch the series? I haven't. Yeah, I was waiting. I'm going to watch it with somebody. So yeah. Yeah. You might hate it because you love the book so much, but I hadn't read the book. And for me, it's like the most beautiful, life-affirming, fucking post-apocalyptic story I've ever heard in my life. That's the book. The book is exactly that, yeah. And oh my God. And it's got like this weird, like it's surreal and awkward and quirky and funny, but also like heartbreaking and tragic and it kind of has like OA vibes, but I think it's much better than the OA. Um, okay, and, so can, can we, can we do an episode on station 11 when I watch it? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. I'm very excited let let me that. know. Absolutely. <laughs> and I might, I might have to revisit some of the episodes, but I mean, I finished it three days ago and it's still stuck with me and I feel like, you know what it was? It's one of those things where it makes me want to just, 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 just like it makes me feel like in the depths of my soul, you know, and I think that's what art is supposed to do. Like when we tell stories, like it's supposed to do that. And so much of the stuff that we're fed is not that. And I'm not saying that how to with John Wilson is going to make me feel in the depths of my soul in the same way. Maybe it will. But like I mean, it, it might. Yeah, <laughs> it, it might. Fuck. Who knows? But it is. It's just I don't know. I I. I, I like art that isn't just amusement. I, you know what I like? I like art that isn't made as an escape of reality, kind of tying in. And I feel like there's this cynical – it's in the background, but there's like this cynical way that so much art is made as an escape, as a release, as just simple amusement, like a soma, you know? And, um, you know, to, to kind of talk about like Neil Postman and, you know, Brave New World and shit. Like it's just a palliative – and I just think that there's a real cynicism in that because um, I think it does kind of deaden the mind and it does deaden the brain and it limits our capacities for poetic thinking. And I think that the beauty is, is in art is when it creates those poetic possibilities that allow us to think um, differently, allows us to feel differently, and it, it raises us to heights of um, kind of uh, imaginative possibility. And that's, that's what I love about good art. So, yeah, amen to that. Wait, so if you didn't watch any of Nathan for you, are you not aware of dumb Starbucks? No. So I watched clips of it because, um, Wisecrack did some work on it. And, um, so I've watched bits of it, but I've never watched, uh, I've never watched like full episodes. Oh, but have you, have you heard of the dumb Starbucks thing? No. Oh, so if anybody out there, I mean, I'll make this quick. Uh, one of the episodes of Nathan for you was where he, I can't remember the the setup for it, but he ends up building like opening real stores called dumb Starbucks. And he really did it in LA. And I remember seeing these <laughs> in LA when it was being filmed and being like, what the <laughs> hell is this thing? And it got, it got like, it was on Twitter and stuff. Like, what is this place? Dumb Starbucks that's down in like the Valley. And it was a real thing that happened. And he opened and he got sued by Starbucks <laughs> he really opened this place that was a it was called Dumb Starbucks. They sold fake Starbucks coffee, and then he got sued and had to close down. And it really happened, and they made it into an episode. Um, if you want an introduction to this style of like weird kind of absurdist documentary stuff, just go watch the episode on Dumb Starbucks from Nathan okay. for you. It's a classic. It I, I don't know if it has the same bite if you didn't actually experience it when in real life in Los Angeles, <laughs> circa 2014 or 15 or whatever it was. But I think it's still pretty hilarious. 
That is pretty hilarious. And the, did you ever go there? No, I drove by it. Um, I remember seeing it, but I didn't go in. It was only open for a couple of days, I think. Like actually yeah. open to serve customers. God, that is hilarious. <laughs> uh, all right, sweet. Well, let's um, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. You know, um, I will post a link down to the interview um, with David Chalmers down below. And uh, again, if you can uh, support us on Patreon, that would be amazing. Patreon.com slash Owls at Dawn. As I said, we've got a brand new producer on board, so we need to be able to pay her so she can edit episodes and do some social media work for us and then help us to really kind of like push things forward and, and build things out in 2022. So that's Patreon.com slash Owls at Dawn. And I think that's pretty much everything for now, unless there's anything else that I'm forgetting. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidani, Amerikanski. Yeah.